they are quite efficient. Uh, they have been quite efficient with uh, with the money, right? Um, so that means that something must be right inherent in the in the business model. Oh yeah. How does that fit in to a cohesive, larger vision? We will always have enough cash yeah. around. Strictly business. Hi, finance leaders, and welcome to CFO Year, your new favorite finance podcast. I'm Patrick, and in this show, I get to talk to CFOs doing incredible things in fascinating companies. In this episode, I spoke with Niels Boone, CFO at Goodiebox. Goodiebox is a direct-to-consumer beauty subscription service, originally from Denmark, but now with over 200,000 customers in nine countries. Niels joined in September 2020, having worked at well-known companies like Ada Health, Boniel, Itembase, Zalando, and McKinsey. His career includes an interesting mix of consultancy, strategic finance at large global companies, and plenty of do-it-all CFO work. So of course we spoke about that, and also how it felt to change roles in September 2020 in the middle of the COVID crisis. As always, this show is brought to you by CFO Connect, a global community for finance leaders. Join us at cfoconnect.eu and you can email podcast at cfoconnect.eu with any questions or feedback. Niels Boone, welcome to CFO Year. Yes, thank you. And to begin, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience and explain your journey to becoming CFO of Goodiebox today? Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah. So my name is uh, Niels Boon, uh, like uh, in Dutch or Niels Boon in, in English. Uh, so I'm, I'm Dutch living in Berlin um, for like eight and a half years right now. And um, yeah, my background has been shortly investment banking, then strategy consulting, and then uh, working in tech companies, starting uh, with Zalando in, um, in Berlin in like 2012. And since then I've um, yeah, been at different companies, uh, always CFO or Kind of COO in a wider um, definition of COO, uh, CFO, let's say, and um, yeah, so I like it a lot, and um, happy to be on on this uh, podcast. How would you characterize yourself as a CFO? Yeah, so I think there are kind of uh, two types of backgrounds typically for uh, CFOs, right? So either more from like the accounting controlling side, or more from the strategic corporate finance side. Um, so I'm more the, the latter. So I come from. Um, strategy consulting background, and I've done a lot of like M&A work and uh, working for private equity clients when I was at, at McKinsey back in the days. And so that's more my background. Um, so I'm always looking for how to use the numbers from accounting and controlling, and yeah, take the right decisions based on those, and to make sure that um, yeah that we create the most value for the company. Um, and I'm less uh, coming from the background of having to make the numbers, let's say. So of course I can like manage teams uh, doing accounting and controlling, but um, if you have now like a difficult question about IFRS, then I'm probably not the right person to, to answer it. <laughs> <laughs> and what attracted you to finance in the first place? Yeah, so I've always been interested um, into um, yeah, any finance topics. So when I was young, like uh, I think 12 or 13, I started investing already like uh, with, no money, of course, right? Because I was still young, but 
Um, and it was even before the days of internet. So I was really like calling the bank by phone and then saying, I want to buy this share. And then I wanted to buy for, it was before the euro even. So uh, Dutch Gilders, right? So I wanted to buy for, let's say 20 euro, five shares or something, right? And then wow. the guy on the other side hearing my voice would say, is this you or are you calling for your father? <laughs> so, no, it's for my own account. <laughs> um, yeah, so and then I read a lot of books about it as well already back then from the local library. So I was going there, getting books and then reading about stuff I had no clue about back then, of course, like, I don't know, option trading or stuff like that, um, because I was just interested in that you can put your money somewhere, put it at work, and then it becomes more. Um, without working for it. Uh, back then, I thought that was uh, the easy way uh, to make a living, let's say. Of course, it's uh, also sometimes going down, right? And it's not that easy. But um, yeah, this is how I got into it, uh, more or less back then. <laughs> and having worked now in quite a range of different roles and different industries, I'm really interested in what you look for when choosing a role or choosing the next company that you want to go and work with. Yeah, so I think from my perspective, um, like I'm quite, uh, I have quite a broad interest. So I like a lot of companies and businesses in general. Um, so I'm mainly looking for some product that I can relate to that I think that really makes a difference to, to people's lives, right? And ideally like something positive, um, uh, like not uh, selling, I don't know, tobacco or something or weapons or uh, anything like that, right? So something that really brings joy. So for example, with Goodie Box, uh, like they have these beauty subscription boxes. So this is always uh, like, especially now with, with COVID times, it's very nice to, to receive those um, boxes, for example, right? So this really makes a difference in people's lives right now. Um, and the same with Ada Health, for example, it's, it really saved lives um, sometimes or uh, helped people a lot as well there. Um, so yeah, some product that you can stand behind. Um, and then of course the business model I believe in as a CFO, right? Because the big chunk of work is typically either to defend numbers to investors or to convince um, investors to invest into your business. So the first step is to be convinced yourself, of course. So this is uh, really important as well. Um, and that also comes with having a good connection with the founders, um, because this is really important for, for the CFO, right? Whether you can actually yeah, work together and whether you have the feeling that the things you will come up with are going to be accepted and appreciated by the rest of the management team and especially the founders mm. who are typically also like the board and shareholders at the same time in, in the startup world, right? Um, yeah, so these three things mainly. Um, and then furthermore, international exposure always. Um, so I, I wouldn't work probably for a company that just does one market. Uh, I always want like the international experience. First of all, because I'm international myself, right? Um, like as in a Dutch living in, in Berlin, in Germany. So sometimes, for example, I was like thinking about maybe a company with only German speaking people for the German markets, but then you feel like you're not um, at the right place because you're not German yourself, right? And the same would happen with uh, like a, a French um, company in, in France focusing on the French market. Like, okay, I could be CFO there maybe, but it's it's um, not the same as if it's all international. Um, so with Goodiebox, we're in uh, nine countries and um, yeah, it's really spread uh, over those countries, uh, the member base and, and the revenues as well. And um, Germany, the Netherlands uh, are both um, big markets as well. So this is me as a person. And then Denmark, of course, is big as well. And we have Norway is big, like all the other countries as well. So here I felt at home. And we also have a lot of Dutch people working here, for example, and German people as well, of course, um, besides a lot of uh, Danish. So this combination was really good uh, for me. Mm. 
You mentioned that you look for a business model that makes sense and that you can believe in. Yeah. So perhaps for the benefit of everyone listening, what is Goodiebox's business model? Yeah, so it's, um, it has two main characteristics. So it's, it's called direct-to-consumer or, or B2C, right? Um, so we're not selling to big companies. It's right to the end consumer and it's uh, subscription-based. So those two things are uh, quite uh, different in terms of business model. Um, and then the third um, thing that's kind of different from maybe other uh, technology companies that you typically think about is that it's a physical product. So it's really a physical box coming to your house with five or six um, products in there. Um, every month, new products, of course. And um, yeah, so there's a whole lot of logistics and planning going on in the background. Whereas if you would have a purely um, digital product, it's just the same for everyone, right? Um, I don't know, like software as a service or some other, like an app, it's the same. Everyone can download it tomorrow. It's no difference. Whereas um, if tomorrow we would get like 10,000 more people subscribing to us, then we don't have the boxes. So this is um, <laughs> what needs to be managed. <laughs> and are you personally quite hands-on in the logistics side of things? Um, logistics is luckily done by, uh, handled by other people. Um, but I'm uh, involved, of course, with everything that has to do with like the numbers around it, right? To to make it more uh, like efficient and make sure that it goes in the right way. So more with the, the planning around it. Um, so because it's a recurring um, uh, subscription of people, you can um, make quite stable predictions, more or less. You can see like cohort base, how many people have subscribed and how many wrote churn every month, and then do an estimate of how many new ones come on top, right? And like this, you can more or less see into the future and say, okay, five months from now, we should roughly have so many uh, members in this country and therefore we need so many boxes produced, etc. Um, but in reality, this is not that easy. So in theory, it's easy, but in reality, like you always have to deal with humans, right? And human factors. And um, yeah, so this is something that can be optimized still a lot. Um, but yeah, so uh, this is one of my focus areas for sure, the planning process, yeah. You arrived at Goodie Box in September 2020. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm interested in knowing about your ramp up period. Were things like those analytics you just spoke about were they already in place, or were you sort of starting from scratch? So the company is now. Um, I think today is actually the birthday. Uh, nine years old. Um, so it's it's not that young anymore. Um, yeah, so nine years already. So of course there's something in place for everything after nine years, right? Uh, but I was in like a need of, uh, let's say, um, uh, let's say a renovation. Um, so uh, like an overhaul or however you want to call it. So the first thing I did was um, to make sure that all the numbers are clean, right? To make sure that like not just revenues and financial numbers and costs, but also uh, operating numbers, like. Uh, the definition of an active member, definition of churn, the definition of like there are lots of sub-definitions that need to be defined as well to make sure that you know what you're looking at and therefore the decisions that you're going to take based on the insights from the data will make more and more sense because the numbers are um, perfectly defined and clean, right? So this process is actually um, still ongoing. So it's now like uh, five months roughly at uh, the time uh, in. And yeah, so it's still ongoing because there's a lot of things that have to be cleaned up. Cleaned up, um, But it all comes together. So when you have more clean financial data and more accurate and, then, and also more accurate member data, when you then bring it together, your forecast by definition will be better, right? Because um, you just get a better view. Um, and typically the issues are that 
the data that come from different sources um, and they all need to speak the same language literally. So they come from different tech platforms or some come with a delay or they come from payment providers or they come from uh, some other sources. And then in the end, the question is, okay, that's all nice, but it just needs to come together in, into one number, right? And what is that number? Um, and yeah, then, then that has to be automated um, so that you can have like these numbers fast as well. So this is the other element. So quality on the one hand, and on the other hand, fast closing or fast uh, numbers so that you can do the decision making faster. Um, so the quality piece, I think I've done, let's say 90% right now uh, of the quality improvements are there. And we have the good numbers, we just don't have them fast enough yet. So we're now retrospectively restating a couple of months back. But we will be done soon and then uh, we will have both super good quality and also it will be done like really fast uh, with reporting some of it in real time even uh, with live dashboards um, and then financial data always a bit trading of course uh, but then we should be good to go and actually look forward and say okay given that we have this data what can we learn from it and how should we allocate resources which countries are actually performing better than others which subsegments of clients if we focus on all kinds of stuff like that if you're enjoying this conversation, then you've got to check out CFO Connect, the global community for modern finance leaders, like the ones on this podcast. We host monthly events and workshops, have a private Slack group for CFOs, and a one-on-one -on -one member matching program. CFO Connect membership is free, but reserved for experienced finance leaders. So if that's you, head over to cfoconnect.eu and apply to join us. Is it complicated personally coming into a company that's already been around for nine years? Do you feel like you have to be careful with what you say and do and how you implement new processes? Yeah, so of course, in the beginning, um, yeah, you don't want to come in and say like, okay, everything is wrong and now we have to do it totally different, right? So my assumption is always um, that like things are there for a reason and done in a certain way. And of course, you have to like ask questions and learn a lot and challenge things, right? but they ended up after nine years in a certain way because people thought that was the best or maybe they didn't think about some elements, but at least it ended up being done like that or being calculated like that or the process is like that or not like that for a certain reason. Um, so the first thing I always do is to just observe and learn like how things are going, but then at the same time ask questions all the time, right? So, um, okay, why is this like that? Why is it not the other way around? Have you thought about doing it like that? Is there a reason that this number always comes two weeks later than the other one, for example? Um, and then you learn slowly, like sometimes, like there's no reason. Okay, then let's do it differently from the, from now onwards, right? Sometimes there's a really good reason, uh, like, okay, this is just a chaos or this is not even possible data-wise or something. Okay, then we have to tackle that and it will take a bit longer. Um, but yeah, so it is always, you need to learn a lot and I try not to offend people, of course. <laughs> and then I, I learned this also, uh, during my time at McKinsey, when I was a consultant, like you shouldn't come in and say like, here, I'm the smart guy, let me fix everything. Uh, because probably you're not right. Like, on day one, you're the person who knows the least of the company. So you always need to learn from the people first um, and speak a lot with everyone. Um, so yeah, the good thing is I have um, the finance team, but also the BI team uh, reporting into me. And then I have all the numbers, let's say, uh, so I can learn a lot from them. And then that was my first, I don't know, couple of weeks, let's say. And then after that, I could give my ideas back and then together uh, work towards how it should be looking in the future. And um, yeah, so this is a process that 
has been going on for the last couple of months and we're close to finishing that and then from then onwards we can improve things yeah and how is the business doing out of interest after what was a, a pretty tough year for for businesses everywhere really yeah yeah so actually um it went uh, quite well so um during COVID, the company um, pivoted from hyper-growth uh, focused um, at all costs, let's say, to profitable growth. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's what happened um, slightly before I, I joined and we're still on this on this process. Um, but yeah, that means that we're still growing, just not like with plus 100% um, anymore, um, but still growing, right? And in a profitable way. Um, and this was actually one of the reasons um, that I wanted to join because like uh, fundraising, it was different during the COVID period, right? So now it's picking up again and uh, there's so much money in the world and all the IPOs are popping um, uh, big time. So it's it's back on its feet again, but six months ago, it was not uh, not true, right? Or nine months maybe ago. Um, yeah, so I thought, okay, it doesn't hurt to be with a business model and, and a company that actually survives COVID times. And if there's a second lockdown or a third one or even more uh, coming later, then at least, we know how to handle it and that we can handle it and that the business model is, is still intact uh, during that. Um, yeah, so that's that's one of the, the strong uh, points. And of course, the offline shops um, for um, like cosmetics and everything and many other shops are closed, of course, right? So that's uh, not hurting our business either. You previously had a leadership role at Zalando, which is sort of a similar direct-to-consumer company, uh, which I think a lot of our listeners will be aware of. But of course, Zalando is a little different. It's it's closer to Amazon or, or ASOS, where users just go on, find the items they want, and buy them. There isn't really the subscription element. So I'm wondering, for you in your role, are there more similarities because they're both direct-to-consumer businesses, or is your role quite different because now you're dealing more with subscriptions? Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, it's a bit of both, indeed. So it's actually quite similar in um, like, okay, you have a physical product, it's lying in a warehouse, and it has to go to the customer um, when when they uh, buy it, right? Um, the difference is that with Zalando um, or any other e-commerce player, that's not subscription. You don't necessarily know when people are going to buy what product because they decide, right? The uh, customer decides. Whereas with the subscription model, you already know exactly which date they're going to buy something because you decide when you ship the, the product and also you decide which products you're going to ship. So we have kind of like a captured audience, if you will, um, of people who already paid for the next uh, or will pay every month for the next, I don't know, 12 months or whatever, however far you want to look. Um, and we can decide what we put in that box every month. Um, so that's uh, the difference. Um, so it's more stable, therefore. It's a bit more predictable, therefore. Um, but of course, we can also um, steer it less um, actively, if you will. So with Zalando, for example, if sales would go down, you just put a bit more discounts, it goes up again or like that. Um, yeah, and, and I was going to mention seasonality as well. Yeah. So a lot of direct-to-consumer brands are really focused on Black Friday and Christmas and, and um, exactly. yeah. holidays like that. And you would still have some of that because obviously people will give Goodie Box as a gift, um, or because there's a specific reason why they want Goodie Box at that time. But yeah. but I'm guessing not quite as much emphasis on those specific days. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we have our main subscription business, which is quite stable, and there's some seasonality in there. Uh, but 
in general general terms it's it's stable but then we also have non-subscription business on top and that's more one-off so we have like special boxes sometimes um or we have for example a christmas calendar as well um this is like a big uh, big thing um so this happens of course just before christmas right so that you get like 24 products to open every day one um uh, one product from your calendar um so yeah this is always happening um in in yeah, November. So we sell them from September to November. But yeah, generally speaking, of course, the subscription business is quite stable. And then on top, we have these um, more seasonal things. And how involved are you and your finance team in things like promotions, pricing, um, and the product range itself? Yeah, so we have um, with me actually uh, Chief Commercial Officer joined as well. Um, a, new, a new person together with me in September. So she should take care of, of these things uh, normally. But of course, when it comes to, to numbers, we, we're doing it together, right, with the full management team. Um, so product selection and everything, like luckily we have people who know way more about that than, than me. But of course, if it's about pricing and margin and stuff like that, then uh, it makes sense to, to involve me. Um, so this is actually one thing we're looking at right now is um, what should be the price in the different markets um, and um, what will be the margin based um, on the price in the different markets as well. Um, and this is one of those things um, that I actually found out during the cleanup of the financials that the margins were different than we thought or than the company thought before um, by country. And now learning from that, um, we can make better decisions, right? So we know, okay, we need to optimize in these countries. And this country here maybe is already a bit more ahead than we thought, and another one is maybe a bit more behind. Um, and also, for example, operational KPIs like the lifetime value um, was um, yeah different than um, thought in the past, let's say, um, because I defined it new, and then we had to um, with the BI team um, recalculate everything also back uh, back in in time with all the cohorts from all the historical months that we have, right? And right now we have everything coming together. So we have the new definitions. And then we can see how one euro spent on marketing, how effective is that if you do it in Germany versus Norway versus Denmark, you can see immediately what, what the impact is there. And like this, we can better uh, reallocate then the budgets. So this is then more where I come into play, uh, looking at these numbers and say, okay, in the past, maybe this was a typical split. Uh, I don't know, 50% was going to the Nordics and 50% Benelux. Let's make it 70-30 or 30-70, depending on the numbers, right? And give uh, more clear uh, guidelines based on these numbers. And it's also um, yeah, more... Uh, more neutral, if you will, more objective, um, less bias. So it's not more money to a certain country because I feel like it's good. Now we can see directly in the dashboards um, that it's actually working better to do it there than in another country. And maybe next month is different because it changes sometimes, right? Um, depending on just like circumstances. Um, and um, yeah, so this is uh, really important to always every month see like, is this still the right split or should we reallocate? And the good thing is we can always reallocate on the spot uh, budget. And I imagine that's fairly similar to what was happening at Zilando. But but what about some of the other companies um, you've recently worked with, like Ada Health or Boniel or Itembase? Yeah, no, that's, yeah, that's, uh, that's different. So not... Not entirely completely different necessarily, but um, it goes back to what we discussed before, like the business model, right? So the most important um, differentiating factor is like how the company makes revenues. Um, so if it's more B2B, so for example, uh, you're working with big insurance companies and you write an invoice every every month or every quarter, 
you can easily predict your revenues more or less. Uh, the only thing you don't know is if you uh, sign a new deal that starts immediately for a big amount. And of course, that changes the picture versus if you don't sign that deal, but it's more chunky, the revenue. So like, okay, if you sign something, it comes, let's say one year in advance per quarter, this invoice will come. And then maybe you sign another one on top or not. Whereas if it's um, B2C or actually SME based, like a small business, uh, it could also be that you focus on them. So for example, with Itemates, we had that. And then you have thousands of clients, but they pay less. And then it's more stable based that you can forecast the numbers for. And then you come quicker to um, these metrics that I just said, like lifetime value and churn and stuff like that. So if you have only 10 clients, uh, like large B2B corporates, let's say, the churn rate is not so interesting because like if someone churns, it's 10% uh, already, right? One out of 10. And if two churn, it's 20, but it's not so helpful. Uh, whereas if you have like a large customer base and that's typically then therefore a consumer business or like a small, um, I say SME focused business, for example, um, then those metrics um, come into play. So it's different metrics, but in the end, yeah, you look at similar things, of course. Um, so if it's more chunky and big contracts, you think more about lead time, implementation time, like when is it happening that the revenues are really going to happen from the sales pipeline that you have towards signing and then the contractual period and then the implementation, and then it goes live. And there can be like two years in between, uh, depending on like what happens, right? Versus um, like self-service business where either a consumer or a small business signs up themselves and it just goes right away with automatic payments and everything. Um, yeah, so that's the main, um, the main difference. But in the end, you just want to have more of it no matter what, in, in any type of business, of course. <laughs> it's in the same direction still. <laughs> and you mentioned earlier that Goodie Box is focused on profitability at the moment in this period, which I'm guessing means that you're not actively fundraising. Yes. Out of interest, do you enjoy fundraising? It can obviously be a big part of the role, uh, and people spend, some CFOs spend a huge amount of time on it, almost going from round to round. Is it something you enjoy or are you happier kind of in this period at the moment? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I think it has it has two sides of, of a coin, right? So with fundraising, so it's always like uh, exciting as well to do. And I've done it for the last, um, I don't know, probably seven years. I haven't not been not in a round, let's say, in an ongoing round, like uh, slowly preparing or in the middle of one or closing one, right? So I've done so many uh, rounds or almost rounds or exits as well. Um, that either happened or didn't happen, right? Um, but you're always in some kind of process. Um, yeah, so I think the main differentiator for me is like if you can choose that you're going to do a round or whether you have to do a round. So you can do a round because your burn is too high and you're running out of cash and now you need to like do a round because like you kind of have six weeks uh, left, right, on, the, <laughs> on your runway and then therefore a round would be nice. Um, or you are like, how I am here with Goodiebox already, you have it on, under control, you have it in your own hands because you're uh, uh, profitable already, right? Um, and then you can decide, okay, we spent, so I try, I try to reinvest all the money that comes out directly back into the business for maximum growth, given the cash situation, right? But ideally, of course, we raise some money and we grow even faster. So we can just accelerate the roadmap of whatever we are planning to do in the future by a couple of years, by raising money now, hire the people now in advance of the wave, or put more into the marketing machine, and then we can grow faster. Um, so it's more a voluntary round. 
if you would do it now versus um, we're running out of money. Can someone please fund us? Um, so if you have um, two extremes, let's say those um, those would be the, the two extremes. And then, of course, the voluntary one is better. Um, yeah, so we are also with Goodiebox thinking, of course, about uh, strategic options, and it will include for sure one way or another funding. Uh, but the good thing is that so far, after uh, nine years, like there's uh, not so much raised. Um, like I think it's about 12 to 15 million euro. Um, and um, yeah, so for mid double digits uh, million revenues in nine countries, 200,000 members, this is really good. Um, so this is actually also one of the things that attracted me um, like uh, to goodie boxes that the new okay. They are quite efficient. Uh, they have been quite efficient with uh, with the money, right? Um, so that means that something must be right inherent in the in the business model. Just before we move off fundraising, what do you think the elements are of a successful fundraising round? Yeah, so it's uh, only one thing: it's preparation. If you ask a company or uh, typically the founders, like, okay, are you prepared for a round? They always, like, when people look for a CFO, they say, okay. We're almost closing a series B, C, D, or we're doing IPO next week. We just need to see a photo join and then we can do it. But typically, of course, it's not true because like, uh, if you were almost closing, why are you not then closing completely, right? <laughs> it's more like we need to see a photo to do this thing and we are not really comp- like prepared. Otherwise, uh, we were not looking for the CFO right now. So prepared means first from a strategy perspective. So what is the strategy? What is the equity story and why? like what you need to do fundraising right as a company this sounds uh, like okay we just need it because we want to grow or something this is always uh, like the typical answer but the question is do you have like an investable case with your company is it like a vc case or a pe case depending on like your size right or maybe it's not maybe it's like um, a, like a debt case or like a bank financing case or something completely different um so it's not that the only the only route to money is like doing funding rounds and going to press, uh, saying we raised X, Y, Z in series A, B, C, D. <laughs> uh, there can be different ways. Um, so be prepared. Uh, strategy, what exactly do we need? What kind of amounts? How are you going to use this money? And then also, so this is more from the story perspective. But then you need to get your act together in terms of like finance, all the financials need to be super strict and clean and they cannot change anymore. They cannot be like half, half. Oh, I found something here. I need to change it in this month. That's not possible. Like it has to be ideally even audited, right? By a big four auditor, but real financials, fast closing, including P&L, balance sheet, cash flow, everything. Um, and uh, real accounting consolidated if you have different entities. Then on the legal side, you need to have everything prepared as well so that you can go into the rounds from like also, for example, what takes a lot of time is typically to get signatures from your shareholders. This sounds like something super simple, but this always happens just before closing that you need to call 30 people. Three of them are living on an island in uh, in, in, <laughs> in, uh, in the ocean somewhere. You cannot reach them and then you cannot close your round. So to do all those things in advance, have your data room prepared and also make sure that your tech, like uh, yeah, your, your tech stack is really good. So you do a due diligence on your tech as well, that it's not like hackable and everything is working. Uh, also on things like GDPR, data protection is really important depending on your business model, um, that everything is just top notch. So that by the time you are going out into the round and people, the investors will ask for all those things, you say, of course, here it is. Like, how do you handle data privacy? Here it is, how's your tech? Here it is. Where are the financials? Here, all done, perfect. What's your strategy? Here you go. 
So if you don't have that, it takes forever. So I've done like around that less than one and a half years, uh, something like that, because we're always like halfway uh, done and not done. And then uh, another month passes and then it's like, oh yeah. And in the meantime, the business model changes three times, but the pitch deck is still from five months ago and the numbers from the financial model are like doing another story still. So it's difficult to get out of it. So the best is to prepare everything and only go out once you're ready. But this then implies that you can choose when the right timing is. And that implies that you're not burning more than you have on your account. So this is how the circle works. <laughs> I think it's really interesting at the moment, especially with COVID, um, reading stories of big fundraising rounds and trying to figure out what the what the true story is yeah, yeah. behind that. You know, we spoke with um, the CFO of Notion a few episodes ago. And in their case, it was like people, you know, the VCs just kept coming to them. It was time. It was obvious that Notion was ready to raise a round and they basically had, were turning people away. So they struck. While exactly. Yeah. And then you have other stories of some companies where you can sort of tell, even though they've raised a, a great round and good for them, that perhaps actually the story is that the revenue has dried up during COVID or that the burn rate has gone way up and, and actually they need the money rather than it's time yeah 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 no definitely it's, it's really interesting to see so indeed if like someone in the travel industry uh, does some kind of rescue rounds it's typically a down round right or i don't know like um, in uh don't want to say all the names maybe but uh, like in for example the online gym gym business or something like this like uh, of course they need to raise money because like the costs are there and revenues just disappeared overnight right or any other um, businesses have uh, to deal with with COVID. and the other way around like uh, telehealth, for example, is just booming because it's just booming in the whole world that everyone speaks to a doctor uh, now digitally. So all these companies are raising money all over the place, right? Are your finance processes stuck in the Stone Age? Huge delays, long email trails, and everything written on paper? It's time to evolve. Spendesk gives you automated expense management and smart company cards ready to use on day one. Every team member can spend safely, even while remote. And finance teams save on average two plus days per month on tedious admin. There's no lengthy setup and no training required. Just expense processes that belong in this day and age. Don't be a dinosaur. Use Spendesk. You're in Berlin. The company is Danish, and the rest of the, the senior leadership is in Denmark, I assume. How does that dynamic work? Um, is it easy to connect with people when you need to connect to them? Um, or is there perhaps are there advantages to being sort of disconnected? Yeah, so we have uh, four in um, sea level. So um, the two founders in Denmark, then there's the chief commercial officer in Munich, actually living there but so by herself let's say home office um and then uh she's moving to to copenhagen soon after like the restrictions are lifted she will she will go there um and i'm then uh, based out of berlin so the distances are not so far normally speaking like if there are no lockdowns and everything i was going to the office in copenhagen in less than three and a half hours from my house in berlin so that was really good um, but of course you have to to go and travel right so it's it's easier if you live in the same place but at the same time it's also good to have it spread out throughout Europe. So we have a big uh, Amsterdam office as well, um, bigger Berlin office. We have people in the UK as well, besides Copenhagen um, headquarters. 
Um, and yeah, we want to be international as well and diverse as well. And also we are present in all different markets, right? So we have nine different markets um, in Europe. So it's also good to not do everything centralized um, and miss the, the, the feeling for the, the local circumstances and like the news and the culture and everything that's happening locally. Um, yeah, so I think it's, um, it's actually going quite well. And to some extent, I actually prefer now uh, also being uh, remote and not every day in, in the office because then you, like it allows you to think a bit more and to also decide a bit more, plan your time a bit better than if you go into the office and everyone is uh, grabbing your shirt every time for questions and things, right? So uh, it has benefits too, but you just need to, to manage it. As a finance team, what are the best ways that you can add value to the company overall? Yeah. Yeah. So I think in the end, it's all about being like a close business partner to all the other teams. Right. Um, so I try always not to have like a finance team that's like sitting somewhere in the basement or in the corner of the office and um, just making numbers and not speaking with people. So then the numbers only, only mean something if you really understand the business well, and therefore you need to understand what the other teams are doing and where the numbers actually come from, like what they really mean, um, so to say. Um, and even more interesting than historical numbers are, of course, the future numbers, like the next ones that are coming. And therefore, you need to, to be in touch with other teams, right? So that you know, okay, we're going to spend more in this country, so therefore, spends will go up. But therefore, I expect also volumes to go up here, and this will then go down so that you have a, a real feeling of what's going to happen. Um, and yeah, so the basics, I say, they have to be in place, meaning quality, like what I said before, the numbers have to be right, not changing anymore. Um, and fast. So it's uh, nice to have perfect numbers from six months ago, but yeah, it's not that useful, right? So um, it has to be faster than that. And then, of course, you come, um, you have to compromise maybe versus quality. But ideally, the quality will be, will be so good that you can um, also automate a lot of things, that you can be both fast and delivering high quality. And therefore, quickly, after the month is over, sit together with the respective teams and go over the numbers and say, okay, this went well, this didn't go well. Is there a reason for it? Do we need to change something? What's important that we change going forward? Um, and also that you can provide uh, kind of business cases or help people think in business cases for every daily decision that they have, let's say. I think that's also quite important in general um, to have like a real... Um, kind of financial mindset or financial consciousness in the company. This is what I try to do as a CFO mainly, so that people start thinking in numbers and, and business cases, right? So we can spend X here or we can spend X there. Like what's what's better and, and how do you think about these decisions? Um, apart from gut feeling like, okay, it sounds good, let's do it. So what's really the business case? Or we can hire five people in the logistics team, or we can hire five people in the tech team. Like, what should we do? Um, like, of course, both teams have good reasons for their team, right? But from a company level, what should we do? And these decisions are not easy. Um, and then with numbers, you can make it better. Of course, you cannot do everything with numbers, but um, yeah, so as much as we can provide those numbers so that we can make sound uh, decisions based on that. Related to those numbers, somewhat related anyway, we're, we're really interested in knowing at the moment um, CFO's forecasting cadences, how often you're reforecasting. Um, so what's the situation like at Goodiebox? Um, yeah, so I'm still in, in the process of improving those things, right? Um, but right now I'm, I'm kind of 
looking maybe almost every day, if you will, this is too often, it's because I'm still uh, learning so many things at the same time, right? So if I get a new insight that changes then something, and then I go back to, to my massive Excel model and see like, okay, what does it mean then if this driver goes like that or like that? But normally I would say once per month is, is more than enough because hopefully your forecast is gonna be so good that you don't even have to revise it. This is of course the dream, like it will never be like this, right? But like uh, in the beginning, because my data quality was not so good, it's like this uh, saying of garbage in, garbage out, right? So if you have like wrong numbers going in, of course your forecast that comes out can never be correct. And then you keep on adjusting all the time. So I'm adjusting on the go more or less. And also because the numbers I have right now are quite old, typically like three months old or even longer. Um, so as soon as I get the new month, I want to take that and put it in and see how does it affect my forecast and is it as I expected or not? And if not, why not? Do we have a problem or is it because I made a mistake maybe? Okay, if not, then we have to solve it. Um, yeah, but so it should be going to once per month. That should be fine in, in the future. And it depends a bit on the on, on like what exactly we forecast, right? So um, maybe some metrics will go a bit faster or you want to adjust maybe mid-month already. For example, marketing spend is one of those where like I like if possible, every week or something, we can see already maybe one country is going better than another, one channel is going better than another, maybe put some more there that you can optimize rather than wait for the full month to be over and then take a week to think about it. And like, that's just too late. Um, so it depends a bit on the item. Well, I've had a delightful time uh, and I'm conscious of your time. So if you're happy to, I think it's time to move on to our quick fire questions uh, with which we like to finish every podcast episode. Yeah. The first question, what's one finance tool that you couldn't live without? Yeah, so this one is a bit boring, but I would say Excel <laughs> still. <laughs> okay, what's one finance tool other than Excel that you couldn't live without? Ah, this is an interesting one now I really need to think. <laughs> I would say it's a tool called uh, Chart.io. Uh, it's what we're using. It's a dashboard. It's more BI, if you will, but we have a lot of uh, like financial, like for example, revenues. I can see real time as well with this tool, right? So it's, uh, it's kind of like Tableau or like any other tool, data visualization tool. Um, but yeah, this one is, um, if I cannot choose Excel, then, then I choose this one. <laughs> I think it's also, um, like partly a generational, uh, thing. So I'm, I'm trained in Excel and raised in Excel, right? So I want to do it myself. So I get a feeling for the numbers and if I change this cell, then that happens. Okay. Then I feel, I get a real feeling for the business, um, business case and business model. If it would be a black box that tells me the forecast is X then I would never be able to trust it in the same way. Uh, but I see that the younger generations, um, they have less issues with that, let's say. So they are more trained to do another tool or automate things in a different way. If there was one part of your day-to-day -day that you could outsource completely and forget about, what would it be? Yeah, this is also an interesting one. Um, I think it would be um, once I have something in my mind, like a, a thought, that someone takes that and then talks about it to all the teams who need to know. <laughs> so kind of taking over my meetings or my slacks or my emails or phone calls, whatever the, the medium is, right? Um, because often like I'm coming to a new conclusion and then now I need to speak with that team, that team, that team to convince them like that that is the new conclusion. And by the time I'm done, like the week is almost over, it feels like, and I could also have used the time to come to the next conclusion, right? So this might be because I'm still quite new at the company too, that I have the feeling like uh, there's a lot of education still ongoing uh, throughout the company and repetition of that as well. Um, so hopefully over time, 
that goes automatic uh, automatically away and like people already think kind of like more like me let's say but uh, yeah this is something that's taking a lot of time but it's also important at the same time right so i wouldn't want to completely forget about it but it would be nice if i just think of something and then i press a button and everyone else thinks the same the next day <laughs> <laughs> what is the best advice you've ever received one thing that i um that i learned when i was at mckinsey from like uh, the um, it was back in amsterdam so from the the, the boss of amsterdam office let's say is something called the blush test. Um, so in case of doubt with decisions and you take a decision in a certain way or you do a certain action, if this action or decision would become public knowledge, like everyone would know about it, would you then blush or not? So would you feel guilty? And this is then helping you to, to get to your answer. So I think this one is really, really powerful. Um, so if you don't know, just think about this, like what if everyone would see me giving this person a raise, but not that person. Like, can I get away with that? If yes, because it's fair, okay, then you do it. If not, because it's maybe not entirely fair, you feel a blush coming up, then you can rethink about it, right? Or with any other decision, you can do the same. Mm. I like that. This one is quite useful. Yeah, I like that. A colleague of mine said the same thing. He called it the newspaper test, but it was essentially the same idea, and it was around COVID. So say someone invites you around for dinner and you're not sure whether you should go one way to think about it is well if this was in the newspaper tomorrow because everybody there got covid would i be embarrassed exactly it's really good and it also gives you peace of mind for yourself right so you go to bed you can see yourself in the mirror and that's no problem at least this is how you can justify it to yourself yeah (laughs) which other finance leaders do you speak to and learn from regularly yeah so here i would say quite like a, a range of people, let's say. So um, going back to when I was in university, um, so some people I know from since then, and uh, actually along the way throughout my career, like former colleagues, slash friends, uh, you've made over time, right? Um, and it could be people more senior than myself or same level or even more junior from my own teams, like over time. Depends a bit on the topic. Um, so if I think like, okay, I'm kind of struggling with this or that, then I know, ah, wait, that person is actually quite knowledgeable about that. And then you can ping that person, whereas for another topic, you might ask another person or maybe completely unrelated people who have nothing to do with finance, right? That might sometimes be even better to ask, <laughs> to ask them, yeah. And last one, why did you join CFO Connect? Yeah, I think this um, comes actually kind of um, yeah into the same direction as the, the previous question. So to ask for uh, things that like everyone is dealing with, right? So all the CFOs or finance People are typically running into the same problems, evaluating the same tools, having the same questions. So it's really useful to be able to informally ask and get answer typically super quickly. Like uh, within a couple of hours, you can already have um, like five answers um, and you're done instead of reinventing the wheel yourself Um, and just in general networking, of course, as well. Um, Yeah, so I think this is really, really useful. Uh, I also try to help myself a lot if people ask something and I know about it. It can be like just five minutes for me to type an answer and it can save someone maybe like weeks of work, right? If you put them in the right direction. So yeah, this is really powerful, I think. Yeah, and and it's growing, right? It's growing quickly. Like the introduction channel is exploding all the time. In the beginning, I read them all and I gave up at some point. (laughs) (laughs) Can't keep up. (laughs) Just too many. Niels Boone, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Yes, you're welcome. It's great to talk with you. (laughs) 
CFO Year is brought to you by CFO Connect, the fastest growing global community for finance leaders. Join us for webinars and workshops, get our expert resources, and be a part of an exclusive Slack group just for CFOs. Join the community and exchange ideas with CFOs from the most exciting companies in the world. Just visit cfoconnect.eu.